Joy, grief, emotions in general are not a binary, meaning you can feel multiple things at one time, including grief in one hand and joy in the other. There is this idea that exists that I think we feel one thing and that's it. You know, if you're grieving, you're sad all the time. If you're joyful, you're happy all the time. But the the entire premise of the book is really understanding the nuance of our emotions and our feelings and, and getting clear that we can, in fact, experience joy even in the midst of the hardest things. And we like to put things in boxes, I think, because it's easier for our brain to hold that information that way, right? Like if I know what to think or do, or if I know what box to place you and I know how to react accordingly. When there's this big, wide open space of, of feelings, of gender, of, of anything really, it makes it, we have to work a lot harder, you know, or it feels like we have to work a lot harder. I have found by practicing this for a very long time, just this sort of middle way, that it actually makes it more intuitive and easier. But I think initially it takes getting used to, right? Like holding multiple things at once and not needing one thing to be right in order to make something else wrong or vice versa. Every business, whether or not they realize it, is an idea business. And great ideas can come from anywhere. The people at Gray have a long history of finding and creating famously effective ideas. And so with Gray Matter, we explore the ideas shaping our world. We ask creators, artists, founders, and leaders from different industries about how they came up with their best ideas. And that's Gray Matter. On this episode of Gray Matter, we'll discuss an idea that reminds us to stop and smell the roses. Hi, I'm Jason Connor, Global Chief Client Officer at Gray. This week, we're discussing the ideas in the book, Microjoys, Finding Hope, Especially When Life Is Not Okay. Gray New York Executive Creative Director Sarah Worthington chatted with Cindy Spiegel, the author behind the book, about her journey to writing the book, the lessons she learned from the people closest to her, and a recent microjoy in her own life. Cindy is a storyteller turned writer and a voice for powerful conversations around self-acceptance, integrity, and joy. Her style of honest storytelling has made her a highly regarded speaker for conferences, brands, and organizations. And she has been featured in publications such as Forbes, Glamour, Teen Vogue, and Huffington Post. Prior to writing this book, in 2018, Cindy wrote A Year of Positive Thinking, Daily Inspiration, Wisdom, and Courage, that has sold over 150,000 copies. Cindy is a former fashion executive and an adjunct professor at Parsons School of Design and the Fashion Institute of Technology. She was also the founder of Dear Grown-Ass Women, an inclusive and highly relatable social community for women 35+. Cindy currently lives in New Jersey with her photographer husband, who she mentions in this conversation, there are two cats and a lot of houseplants. This is Cindy Spiegel. In 2018, I wrote a book called The Year of Positive Thinking. Uh, I had become known as this sort of sassy but positive woman on the internet and just in life. 2020 happened. We all went collectively into a global pandemic, but my own world really started to unravel. In May of 2020, my nephew, my 32-year-old nephew, was murdered walking to a friend's house. Four months later, my beloved mother, Mama Shelley, passed away unexpectedly. Within a month of that, my brother went into heart failure uh, and was in the cardiac ICU for two and a half months. And with a month of him coming home, I was diagnosed with breast cancer. All of that happened within a 10-month period of time. So the woman who wrote a book called A Year of Positive Thinking that, by the way, sold hundreds of thousands of copies, I no longer felt like her anymore. 
I couldn't be in that space. And to be clear, micro joys is not the opposite of a year of positive thinking, you know, but I didn't want to think positively. That was so far out of my reality at that point in time. The idea of having to find a silver lining or consciously be more positive was just not where I was. Everything that I said in my first book still holds true. It just wasn't where I was in that moment. But I have always been an optimist, right? I've been an optimist for as far back as I can remember. And what started to happen was that I would notice these these sort of ordinary moments of beauty that existed in the world, regardless of what I was feeling, you know, uh, whether it be daffodils that are blooming, regardless of how sad I am, you know, my brother's laughter, regardless of the fact that we are grieving, wearing my shirt inside out and realizing it, like even that humor became these sort of moments of respite that broke the spell. And so I started to talk about them and I refer to them as micro joys, not because they are small, but because they are easily accessible. They exist regardless of our current circumstances, right? These these moments of beauty are going to be there no matter what we're going through. But I did find that they created this beautiful third space that allowed me to hold multiple truths, like still acknowledge what was happening, still see the beauty that existed while also allowing myself to feel whatever I was feeling, grieving, loss, sadness, all of that. Yes. I I feel so terrible for all those things. Obviously, it was traumatizing. I was reading them and I was like, I have to acknowledge it. And that's like so rough. And like, I'm sorry. Thank you. Thank you for saying that. Micro joys, is be- I was reading a bunch of stuff about it. And there's another way that they talk about it in like neuropsychology. It's mm-hmm. called savoring. Mm-hmm. And it's literally microjoys. And they say mm. it's the cure. It is literally what equates to happiness. It changes the chemistry in your brain. It's called, it's like recognize there's a cute bird and savor it and pay attention to it. And they didn't. And the way that you've basically reframed that for me when you were like, it's more accessible. It's not that it's tiny. It's not small. It's actually right. life and it's everything. That's it. Super made like clicked and made a massive difference. So I was like, how am I going (laughs) to savor all these things? Like I was trying to, but it's very accessible and you can make the effort. It's not a massive effort pushing you towards happiness. That's right. The difference between happiness and joy. Happiness to me is fleeting. It is temporary. It's beautiful, but it's not something that we need to be chasing all the time. We live in this culture that tells us that we should chase happiness. We should look for it everywhere we are. When we're not happy, it's because something is wrong with us. Joy, on the other hand, is more stable and more internal, right? It's a lot of actions over time, smaller actions, accessible actions over time that lead us to be joyful. Joyful to me comes from the inside out. Where I think of happiness, I think of retail therapy. I love to go buy a beautiful thing, but as soon as that beautiful thing is put in the closet, that fleeting moment is over, right? It's not a feeling that generally, and that's that's a school of thought. It's not the only school of thought when it comes to happiness and joy. It's more like joy comes from the inside, is basically what you're saying. And then happiness is something that's external. That is that how I would like distill it? That's exactly right. Like happiness is external. It's temporary. It's fleeting. Joy becomes 
it's this internal thing that becomes who we are in the world. And it has nothing to do with socioeconomics. You've, you've met those people. Most of us have come across somebody in our lifetimes, if we are lucky, that just emanates joy. Now, there's nothing outwardly about that person that makes you think they should be that way, right? Maybe they don't have a lot materially, financially, but somehow there is this almost light that shines from them. That is what I refer to joy, right? I think about my 85-year-old aunt cooking in her kitchen in North Carolina. Like she was one of the most joyful people that I know. She passed away in 2023. If you knew her and you knew her lived experience, she had no reason to be joyful, or at least it seemed that way. And that to me is what joy is. Right. Are those people that just, it comes through them and Continuing this practice of micro joys, it is my belief that turns us into joyful people, right? Even moments of happiness can turn us into joyful people. As long as we know we're not chasing happiness because micro joys leave room for the difficult emotions as well. Yes. Unless you're all smart and stuff. (laughs) I love it. (laughs) Why was it important to you to write this and talk about this and share this with the world? You know... Having come out of what I did in my own experience, what I started to realize, Sarah, was that I am not special in this, meaning I know that everyone's default is to go, oh, my God, I'm so sorry this happened to you. The truth is, is this happens to a lot of people all the time in many different ways. That was extra, though, for you. We can give you a moment this year. It was extra. extra. No, no, no. No, for sure. It was, that was a lot. That was a whole lot of extra, right? In 10 months. But what I mean by that is we just humans in general, we have these things and these moments in time where it feels like the world is coming at us. It doesn't necessarily look like half of your family dying and you getting diagnosed with breast cancer. But I think, and again, so much of this will go back to my sort of philosophy of of life in general. It's like everything is temporary. Everything is fleeting. We will all experience moments like this. That's not to discount what I went through, but it is to say that I realized very quickly how common it was to be in a space of compound loss or loss in general and feel like you had to stay in that place all the time until some unknown moment in time where you can stop feeling sad. Because then what happens is we start to feel guilty because we laughed. We start to feel guilty. Oh, why am I allowed to laugh right now? Yeah. Right. My mom's dead. Why should this be funny? It's inappropriate. I'm like being wrong. I'm chastising. Yeah, 100%. There's this weird rules. People judge you too. All of it. We judge ourselves massively. Yeah. Yeah. We judge ourselves, people judge us. And so so the idea of getting this book out, particularly at this time, was like we are coming out of a pandemic where we have lost more people at one time than we ever have in our lifetime from COVID. Are we going to know how to hold all of these emotions as we move out of this pandemic? Will we know how to hold them? And the truth is, is I didn't believe that we would know how. And I think this is going to take a lifetime of really understanding and learning how to hold multiple things like joy and grief. What surprised you when you were writing it? How easy it was to write. Really? Meaning, yeah, the stories just flowed. You know, I didn't, to be clear, I didn't set out to write this book. A publisher asked me to write the book. 
they reached out to me and said, would you be interested? It's not the publisher I ended up going with because the book, by the grace of God, went to auction. And so there were many publishers who wanted the book. Yes. But it wasn't necessarily something I planned to write. I talked about microjoys on social media a lot. It was a word that sort of became part of my everyday vocabulary, but it wasn't something that I initially thought needed to be a book or was going to be a book. It was just a concept that I continue to talk about. And so after the book was proposed, went to auction, did the thing, and I sat down to write it, I don't think I realized how easy it would be to write. These stories just that I've amassed over time, and I can find a story about anything, and I think that's part of it. It just became like it, in this moment where I was just grieving so much, I was I was within six months of all of this loss is when this book was sold. I think I just needed to get the words out. I needed to share these stories. I needed my mom to still feel present. I needed my nephew to be present. I needed my everyday experience to feel normalized. And so it was surprisingly not a challenging book for me to write at all. The formula, I am obsessed with it because I think I'm a little too like goal oriented in a way I'm working (laughs) on, but I love that it was almost like workbook style where you do a story and then you're like, okay, this is how I saw this. And I would be like, how would I, I would be looking like for it. I'd be like, okay, you're telling a really traumatizing story for like a page, right? One summer, a few pages. So I'm like, okay, try to find like the micro joy in that, which I think was the intent, right? Obviously it's like <laughs> almost workbook, like you describe and explain and set up what micro joys are and sort of help people understand that. And I appreciated also like you would reframe it in different ways several times. Mm-hmm. I was like, yes, because that's sinking for this type of person who can think like this. And it was super <laughs> helpful for me. And then you're like, here's examples. And then applying those examples, which is the only way you can change your brain to practice something new, which is trying to, because the reason we don't look for micro joys is because we're trying to run away from tigers and not die. Like our reptilian brains, right? Like we're not safety. (laughs) We're not being safe from doing this, right? So that's Mm -hmm, why it's like mm -hmm. a practice and it's harder. But I think that formula is super successful in helping reframe your brain that way. Thank you for saying that. The layout of the book is 45 essays. And then within each essay, at the end of every essay, and some essays are one page, some are five pages, but at the end, there's a consider this section. What's interesting that you mentioned that because it was very important to me when writing this book that we not tell the reader what to do or the listener what to do, right? When you are in the midst of your own hardest things, the last thing you need is somebody telling you how you should feel, how you should exist in the world. And so I remember when I first started writing the book, initially that section was called Try This. And halfway through, I reached out to my editor and I said, that's not the language. And so it's the consider this section. And the idea is simply synthesizing the micro joy in the essay that I shared because it is memoir. And my hope was exactly what you just shared is that it makes it easy for folks because we learn in so many different ways. We receive information in so many different ways, but to make it easily accessible for folks to put this into practice in their own life, regardless of whether you got it from the essay or you got it from the consider this section. You've walked away with the lesson, the idea, the ability to access micro joys. I was very obsessed with that style and it very much worked (laughs) for me and I very much appreciated it. You're welcome. Would you say that it's a (laughs) self-help book? 
I would say that it's a self-growth book. That um, makes sense. Yeah, I would say it's about everything in this book is about self-awareness. Which is the key to life, right? <laughs> it's just about self-awareness. So I would say it's about, it's self-growth. It's memoir slash self-growth. Were you ever like, I'm going to throw in the towel. I can't do this anymore. It's too too much for me. Well, I think the book, I never thought I was going to throw in the towel, but, you know, work. I thought I was going to throw in the towel plenty of time working for myself, you know, not not specifically with the book. No, I worked in fashion for 17 years and then a decade ago decided to do this. I don't think anybody who works for themselves has ever not had a moment where you thought you might throw in the towel, but very quickly changed your mind and thought, give me that towel back. I can't work for anybody else ever again, you know? Yeah, that's great. Who are your biggest supporters when you were doing this? My husband, first and foremost. Um, he's so cute. He is, he is such a delight. And everybody loves Ira. Like, Ira is just wonderful. But yeah, he he was very supportive kind of through this whole time, writing the book, but also that time frame in general. I remember we had just moved to Montclair and... When all of this was happening, I didn't know what to do with my hands. I didn't know what to do with my brain. I just didn't know how to exist. So he would come home after work and I would say, you know what? I'm thinking of painting this room hot pink. I'm thinking of painting this trim chartreuse. I'm thinking of doing this. And I remember he said this to me one day uh, and it was just exactly what I needed to hear. He said, paint until your heart is content. We can always undo things later. And I thought, we all need a person in our lives yes. that give us permission to do these ridiculous things. Because I love hot pink, but I don't necessarily think a whole room needs to be hot pink. But for Ira, he was like, if it makes you feel good to paint it hot pink, then go ahead and do that. We can always undo it. But so he was he was a really big, and he always is a supporter of everything I do, but also my close friends. You know, I lost one of my closest friends. She didn't die. She just sort of disappeared during this, like a lifelong friend. And I remember feeling very hesitant about friendships while all of this was happening. But what I came to sort of really understand at that time is that the people that are meant to be there in any particular moment show up. They are there. And so my friends showed up in ways that I wouldn't have expected you know, and I talk about this a little bit in the book, but, you know, sometimes it was just a matter of like sending me a random cat meme or delivering ice cream to my house, like just silly things that most people wouldn't think of. So I was surrounded by a lot of support. You talked about your friend knew how you took your coffee. Yes. Yes. Isn't that funny? As I was writing that essay, I thought, how do I have so many stories about the color of my coffee? Yeah. <laughs> Why is that a thing? Which, you know, go figure. But within between the book being written and the book being published, I can't even have dairy anymore. Now I have oat milk in my coffee. So it really throws that whole essay out the window because oat milk and coffee does not make it that perfect color that I talked about in the essay. But it's a different tone. I like <laughs> that you noticed that. It's a it different, different shade. <laughs> but that's the kind of stuff, right? Like having friends that know exactly how you want your coffee. That's the sort of support that I had during this and, and since then. So it makes a difference. It helps us move through things. It does. What type of feedback have you received on this book? So such a great question that I'm glad you asked because it is 
a book that looks really very joyful. It's colorful. It's all the things. I find the book to be joyful. I don't often read reviews of the books. Like from the from a press perspective, it's gotten great reviews. I'm honestly more curious about what people think when they get it in their hands. I mean, it's nice for people to say nice things about you. It's nice for time to say nice. Like those are beautiful things. But to ma- what matters to me is the impact on people. The majority of people talk about how they've been through a lot and this is exactly the book they needed. And there are other people who say like, why do I care what happened in this woman's life? Like this is not the book that I was promised that it would be, which I know sounds wild, but. It's the tension that you need to explain the solution. Yes. Right? Like they don't want you to have the tension. I I don't I don't know, but what I find fascinating is the amount of responses and how varied the responses are to the book. Like I said, overall people got behind it. They should people also the the other end of that, Sarah, is that people will send me emails and messages that are very very personal and very very detailed. Because when you write memoir, when you share deeply personal parts of yourself, people then feel like they know you. And what do we do with the people we know? We share back. Not everybody, but some people. So the other end is is getting it all from people and, and me not knowing how to respond because what I am an expert on is my own lived experience, but I don't know what to tell you about yours necessarily. You know, when folks message me seeking advice. So there there's this wide gap between what the understanding of the book is and what people think of the book. Overall, it's been very, very positive, but I think that any author could tell you the same. My first book has like 7,500 Amazon reviews. I don't read them anymore, but I will just say you would go from like a five star, we love this, everything about it changed my life to like, this is garbage. Don't even, it's not even worth the paper it's printed on. Like it is wild. So when you write a book or when you publish anything of value, you are going to get feedback based on where a person is when they read it. And so I think as as authors, our job is to at least partially be prepared for that and not cling so tightly to our ego that we can't handle that when it comes, that it breaks us apart and stops us from, from ever writing again, right? It's like, no, this is the world we're in. People have different thoughts and ideas about, about the writing, about the work. And that's where, what you just said is the perfect, like where they're coming from is exactly reflected in that. Like people that are like, this is garbage. I don't want to be positive. I'm like, because you're <laughs> going through it and you're traumatized and it's, you know, always with everything, like in advertising, we like <laughs> make things and we test them. And then people are like, I hate this yeah. and they lose their mind about it. And I'm like, it's a unicorn farting a skittle like why are you mad this shouldn't anger you well and that's always what it is right if we can remember that first and foremost like people's response is based on what they are going through and who they are in that particular moment and that is fleeting and evolving so it's not a it's not personal it's so hard to remember that though i know i know i know so it you you really it's it's a practice like everything, right? You've got to keep reminding yourself over and over and over again, you know, that that this is, it really is not about you. It's not about my book or my writing. It's just where somebody is in that moment. I mean, there are lots of things I dislike. It, it doesn't occur to me to go on the internet and tell people. But, but I do think that 
for somebody to feel like that's what they need to do, there's something happening, you know, that has nothing to do with what they just read. Exactly. What would you say to someone like you that has an amazing idea, but doesn't know where to start? Just start. I know. I, I, it's, it's the worst answer, but it's also the most honest answer, which is just start. Because here's the thing. If you have an amazing idea and you refuse to start, whatever that looks like for you, the idea never gets out of your head and it never creates impact, which for most of us is at least partially what we hope to do. Start wherever you are. Start with whatever you have. So if you want to write a book, writers write. You don't have to write well, but you do have to write. If you want to publish a book, you do have to put a pitch together. Like start writing a little bit at a time, but you do have to do the thing. And there is no other way than to start. You know what? It's Ira's advice. It's Ira's advice. Just do it. And then you can just undo it. Just as long as you start. You can undo it. And the other thing is, is when we start, we, we, we begin to understand our own process and our way of moving through things. But if we never even try, then we're never going to get beyond it. And I think starting is often the hardest part. Once you're in flow, you know, when you asked me earlier about the experience writing the book, and I thought, well, it was a really easy book to write because I'd already gotten through the beginning parts, right? I'd already done the hard part, which is starting, sitting down and saying, okay, I'm going to put a proposal together for this, but start anywhere. The getting over the fact that something needs to be perfect and done at the beginning, it's like, just do a thing and then you can fix it later. I feel like with everything that super helps me when I'm like being creative and because I I'm a creative in advertising and um, we have to, we, I'm the art director, but I work with a copywriter and I have to write and art direct and whatever, but it's like blank page. I'm like, just do something bad and then make it say, say it straight and then say it great is what we say with like copywriting. So just write it how normal words and then you can go back and fix it later, right? You can always undo it and fix it or just comp something quickly or draw something quickly. And then I can like finesse and, but that's, it's, it's, that's just getting you over that first bit, which I think that's right. Just try and start. But I know some people get like paralyzed by that. And yes. You just have to let it be not perfect at first. And who cares? I did a thing and yeah. then I could keep going. Also not perfect at first and maybe not perfect ever. Ever. Yeah. Love Right. That. Just, just having this idea that when you take the weight of perfection off of your own shoulders, you'd be surprised what you come up with. The words that come out of your mouth, the the work that you can create. Um, if you are able to really be with this idea that I don't need it to be perfect, but I do want to do this thing, whatever it is. I don't need it to be perfect. It'll be whatever yeah. it is. Maybe it will get better. Maybe it won't, but I'm going to put it out there anyway. You know? Yes. Love that. How did you come up with the name for your book? How did you come up with the word microjoice? So the the name of the book is Microjoice Finding Hope especially when life is not okay. And when I initially started talking about microjoice mainly on Instagram on social media, it started out from things that seemed small, right? So small, micro, you know, in hindsight, they weren't small at all, but because they were so accessible, they felt small to me. Mm -hmm. So I started calling them microjoys because I think it was the easiest word. I knew it was a form of joy that I was experiencing, but I wasn't ready to take on that title in the midst of the hardest things. And so the word microjoys just kind of stuck. And as 
as time passed, it really started to evolve into a much a much wider definition, right? Not small joys, but instead these easily accessible moments of joy that exist regardless of our current circumstances. So the word really just stuck. It stuck because once people start using it back to you, you can't change the word. Right. So I started talking about micro joys on social media and then people would tell me about their own micro joys. I couldn't take that word back from them, then could I? So it stuck. And now it's the name of a book and it's not going anywhere. (laughs) Do you have a specific process for writing or is there places you go for inspiration when you're stuck? So when it comes to writing, I find that what is most important in terms of my process is freedom and space. So it's not so much about where I sit down to write, but if I am going to write, I will often go for a walk. I will go grab a coffee. I will walk through the neighborhood. I will talk to strangers, meaning I need to sort of empty out all of this other excess energy. I need to sort of work it, work it off before beginning to write. And that is probably true for a lot of us, meaning I can't necessarily wake up in the morning and then go to my computer and start writing. I am going to wake up with a lot of energy that needs to be burnt off. And so I'm going to need to get out, be in nature, get fresh air, and then come back, sit in a corner in my apartment and then start to work. The other play, I'm not great at writing in public spaces, like going to a cafe and actually getting thoughts out just doesn't work for me. My husband, who is a photographer, can have 19 different things going on at one time. He's got music going. He's got a movie playing on the iPad. He's got his work, you know, on the computers, images that he's working on. I, on the other hand, can't have any noise, right? So I never play music while I'm in my apartment. It's very, very silent throughout the day. The only other place that I've been able to write and really write, and I think that's partially because of the kind of writing I do, which is deeply personal, is the library. I love Montclair's library. It is, I mean, listen, there are a lot of weird folks at the library. You got to know this going in. For sure. But but, um, to find a quiet spot in the library, I think is so um, underappreciated. It makes you like, for me, it makes me feel like a kid again. Like I have this whole beautiful office. Shouldn't I be writing here? But there's something that goes back to the most beautiful parts of my own life when I can sit in a library. It just makes you feel like you can share things and be personal. And so the library and my home are really the only places that I can write. How long did it take you to write your book? Somewhere between four and six months to write the book and go through editing. So the writing happened fairly quickly, but then there are multiple edits that take place. So I would say all in between four to six months. I had this really beautiful relationship with my editor in that before we even started to edit the book, we talked about the process that would work for me as the writer and also work for her. What I didn't want to do, and I've heard a lot of these nightmares from other author friends of mine where they put in all this work, they write this massive piece, they hand it over to the editor and find out that there's everything has to be rewritten. So it was important to me when writing this book that we meet once a month. I said, can I send you the essays I've worked on, get your general feedback, not line by line edits, which happens later, but just your general feedback for direction. And It made for such a beautiful way of working because by the time I handed the full manuscript in, nothing was brand new. 
Like we were both aligned. There was no need to rewrite any massive parts of the book. It was simply editing. And I know that that from a process perspective is not necessarily how it often happens. So I was just really appreciative that she was willing to do that because editors are working on multiple books at a time. And the You know, it it is a big ask to say, hey, can you once a month look at this book, even though I'm not ready to hand it in? But it was a really beautiful way to write a book like this and make sure that we are aligned throughout the whole process of writing. That's interesting. I've always been super fascinated with how much power the editor has in that situation. And I've I've always been like, they can just like what I do probably with my creatives where I'm like line by line changing this, being like, change this, change this. They have that power. So you probably have to find somebody that you align with and you setting up those check-ins, probably super different than what most people do, but I could see how that would make it way less like dramatic in the end where you're basically having to redo all the things. Yeah, and the, the other piece of it, right, is when you are an author and your book is getting acquired by a publisher, you are, as much as I was signing on to have Penguin Random House be my publisher, Really, what I was signing up for was having Margot be my editor. What Penguin Random House was signing up for was building Cindy's career as an author. Hmm. So it's not so much, you know, I think it can be looked at as hierarchical, but it's not. I had every right to say, I don't want to. I mean, there were, I want to say when it went to auction, there were maybe six publishing houses that auctioned for the book. It's a real collaboration between the editor and the author, right? Like how you work and how they work has to make sense. I would not have signed on with Penguin if it weren't for this editor necessarily, because that is where the relationship lies. So there really is this sort of balancing act that happens with editor and an author. It takes a lot of yourself to write a book like this, and it takes a lot of courage. Where does that come from? My mom... It comes from my mother, you know, I had a mother that mirrored for me what it looked like to do difficult things, what it looked like to put your heart into everything that you did, whether it was baking a cake or, you know, traveling across the world. I had a mother who showed me what that was. And so even though she didn't necessarily have the language to tell me about courage or to to share what that was, she showed it to me through her actions every day. And so now as a grown person, you know, I really do credit my mom and her way of raising us with the courage that I have. Imposter syndrome, major issue with people who are creative and in the creative industry, and you are a creative person as well. How do you overcome that? I think after having worked for myself for a long time, I've just started to recognize that most of us have a little bit of an idea of how to do things, but we are all really trying to figure it out given our own lived experience. It's not to say that it doesn't happen anymore. There are definitely rooms that I walk into and I think, who invited me to this party? Like that happens and it, and I, I hope it always happens because that just means that I'm in the room with spectacular people. How I overcome it. That's you being positive about that. Is it? <laughs> that's amazing. Is it? Yes. Well, You're turning the what's negative into a positive. Oh, I feel weird here, but that's great because I'm around fabulous people. 
Well, I, like I don't it. think, you know, I don't see it that way because I don't find the need. I'm a little bit anti-silver linings, which is having to turn a negative thing into a positive because I think that's the default for our culture. Okay. It's like, make something good out of it. And I'm like, no, you don't have to make anything good out of it. But I suppose there is part of my mindset that maybe does that automatically. Imposter syndrome to me is not destabilizing. It's something that I am aware of that allows me to know that I am on the right track. It's more of a compass than it is anything else. So it, it doesn't destabilize me, right? Me knowing that I have this sense of do I know enough means that I am challenging myself, means that I am doing important work, right? If it's something that's not important, then I don't feel like an imposter, When it's something that's deeply important to me, that's when I start to go through the motions in my mind. And I think having done that for a long enough time, I start to catch myself and realize that it is because the work matters that I feel like an imposter right now. And then I remind myself of every reason why I should be talking about this thing, why I am equipped to do this work. So it's a little bit of... um, Catching myself when those thoughts come up, recognizing what that is for me, which for me, it triggers me to remember how important this thing is that I feel like an imposter, and then reminding myself of all of the reasons that I should be in this room. Catching, recognizing, and then reminding. You got it. I love it. (laughs) Can you give me a micro joy that you experienced this morning? Yes. Uh, I was walking. Now I, I am, it's just my lens on the world now. So I will spot a micro joy anywhere. But I was walking to grab this tea that I'm holding in my hands right now. And there were two people, one woman walking with her pet and then another woman walking with her pet. I don't know why I'm saying pet. It was a dog. It was not like a yeah. random pet. Yeah. <laughs> These were women walking with dogs, not just pets. But the first woman did not scoot over so that I could walk past. So I had to stop and allow the woman and her dog to walk past. You know, it happens. So I kind of did the inner eye roll as we do. I mean, sometimes it's external, but I had glasses on so nobody would have known anyway. But the next woman who was probably 50 feet behind her had this really adorable fluffy dog that looked like a Muppet. And Mm -hmm. as soon as I got close to passing by, the dog just like, collapsed on the floor. Not in a, not in a bad way. Just like his legs splayed out all like all four of them. And he just collapsed on the grass. And it was the cutest thing having walked away from this other experience where I had to like step aside to let the woman and her dog through to have this floofy little Muppet just collapse in front of me. So that was a micro joy. I thought like, and then, and then because the universe is is so good to me most of the time, except for that 10 month period of time, when I was walking back with my teeth, the same dog, I ran into the same dog. This time he didn't do that, but he definitely knew the first time I needed some dog love. And so that, that was my micro joy. Oh, I love it. Cutest little sploot. That's called a sploot. A sploot. Yes, that's what he did. It was the little, yeah, just just right there. It was the cutest thing ever. So yes, that that was my micro joy. That was within the last hour. Cindy has such an amazing way of seeing the world. What did you find most interesting when chatting with her? I found it fascinating and interesting that she answered every question with a response that was pretty much in effort in service of someone else and trying to help other people. So her intention for the book and the reason that she does everything was really just to share what she had learned through her process of grieving and 
everything she experienced. And it was all just to help other people. Tell us how our listeners can learn more about Cindy and her work. Of course. Folks can start by going to her website, cindyspiegel.com. It's C-Y-N-D-I-E. And she's on Instagram at Cindy Spiegel. And you can find or buy her books anywhere you can buy books. That's incredible. Thanks, Sarah. This week, the podcast team and I would like to thank Adrian Hopkins. If you'd like to hear more creators, founders, and inventors discuss ideas they are passionate about, then check out all past podcasts in this feed. Reach out to us with questions and comments on Gray's social channels or our email address, podcasts at gray.com. And lastly, tell someone about our show. It helps us share these ideas with the world. I'm Jason Connor, and thanks for listening to Gray Matter, a podcast about ideas. Gray Matter is hosted by Jason Connor, produced by Samantha Geller, mixed by Guy Rosemarin and Amanda Fuentes at Gramercy Park Studios, with post-production support from Ned Martin, Robin Frank, and Kyle St. Agath. Marketing and administrative support by Christina Hyde, Adrian Hopkins, Marcella Basilar, and Gina Cuneo. Editor and executive producer, Joey Scarillo. Gray is a global creative agency whose mission is putting famously effective ideas into the world. Check out more at gray.com.